the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is George Anderson, author of Life Between Heaven and Earth, What You Didn't Know About the World Hereafter and How It Can Help You. New York Times bestselling author and internationally acclaimed medium, George Anderson, has dedicated nearly 50 years working as a liaison between heaven and earth through his ability to communicate messages of hope from those who have passed on. Since the age of six, Anderson has had a special relationship with what he calls the souls, who depend on his ability to hear them and bring peace and comfort to their grieving loved ones. Yet George Anderson, who paved the way for many of today's popular mediums with his pioneering work in the 1990s, is consistently reminded by those who have passed that our preconceived notions of this life and the next aren't always as they seem. Sometimes we need our beliefs challenged in order to find resolution in this life and the next. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, George. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Great to have you here. So this, I mean, you're a New York Times best-selling author. Uh, this is your new book. Uh, and I have to admit, and I'm sure, I mean, you get confronted with this all the time. I'm a little bit, I was a little bit skeptical, but I, I did get drawn into uh, to your book, to the story. So um, what inspired you to write this book now? Well, basically to, again, cover stories and instances uh, about the hereafter and what basically um, the souls say, what has been learned. Um, For example, uh, the story in the book, um, Life Between Heaven and Earth, about um, this uh, soldier who um, came back from the Middle East where um, he had become friendly with a little girl and she ended up, ended up being shot, you know, by the militants over there, I guess because, you know, of her affiliation with an Amer- American soldier, you know, a- an innocent one. And... Um, you know, finding out how, where she, when he had the session with me, she came through and um, explained to him that, you know, her passing was just, you know, a sad act of ignorance and violence that had nothing to do with his relationship with her. And I think um, 
even me still doing sessions, still learning what the hereafter is all about. Can we start, I'm going to interrupt you because I want to kind of give maybe some more background or your background when you first realized that you were able to connect with these souls and, and, and connect with um, or create that liaison between heaven and earth. And you had access, I guess, to the hereafter. So uh, let's start back when you were a young man because certain things happened to you and, and you were diagnosed as schizophrenic because you're hearing voices. So let's get, you know, we, I think we need some history in terms of how you got to where you are. Well, actually, it started at the age of six. I had chickenpox severe, and it caused uh, muscle paralysis where I wasn't able to walk for a period of time. And then it finally, when it was cleared up, it was not long after that. Um, see, like in this case with me, it's not. It's not any type of conjuring or such. The souls will come to me, use me as the instrument. And um, so when I started realizing that, of course, we're going back to the 1960s. And, you know, I was raised in a very strict uh, Roman Catholic household and was attending... um, Catholic school at the time, and at the age of 14, it started to become more pronounced and more frequent. And when you say it became more pronounced, what did you do? Were you, would you be asleep? Would you be awake? And suddenly you'd hear voices coming from... Well, from no, where? I would be awake, and you would just, you know, feel a presence. Um, it's mostly feeling, I would say, um... I would say I'm feeling I'm hearing them and uh, feeling that I'm seeing them. It it definitely works, to, you know, with my brain very heavily. And uh, as a matter of fact, many years ago, I had an experiment done uh, by a neurologist where he was fascinated at the fact that as soon as I felt somebody was reaching out, he would, uh, he said that the front, I think it was the front global region or something he called, I'm no doctor, so I don't remember the expressions, but he stated that um, that would light up. And ironically, it's called the dead zone because they don't know what its purpose is. So in most people, it doesn't light up. We have the equipment to monitor what's happening in the brain, which we didn't have before. So now when the neurologist is monitoring your brain, there's a dead zone that doesn't usually light up for other people or people who don't have the the ability to connect with the hereafter like you do. Is that what you're saying? I, I would think so because once I said that, you know, they're departing, you know, they're, you know, disconnecting from me, I could say, uh, the zone would go back, you know, like light would go out. So, you know, there's been many, many theories and speculations as to what's going on. You know, you'll have, you know, the skeptic out there, but you don't know if, 
most of the time the people I've encountered, I don't think I'd consider them skeptics. I think I'd consider them cynics. Um, you know, they've already made up their mind. They don't believe anything. I mean, I would probably consider myself at this time um, to be a little on the agnostic side. And, uh, you know, because as the souls say from over there, you just don't know until you learn it for yourself. And I think that's the key. Well, do you have contact with other mediums? Because, I mean, and how many people, and I don't know if you know this or have the statistics, but how many mediums are there with you, you know, that you, do you have contact with them and do you share similar experiences or, uh, or, or, do you sort of operate on your own? I mean, you've been called, I mean, you have been called to, um, you invited to apparently to Holland by surviving members of the Anne Frank family. I mean, I'd like to hear what they wanted you to do, but so, I mean, you have a, a reputation and to, as a credible medium. Um, and I, like, I guess my question, getting back to my question is, uh, do you have, Access to other mediums? Do you talk amongst yourselves or what? Uh, no, actually not. I've always been cautioned um, by the souls um, in the hereafter to just stick completely to myself. And that's what I do. I just, you know, do it on my own, work with it on my own. I really don't get involved uh, with anybody else, I think I'd prefer, I, I think their advice was very solid in that fact of just keep to yourself, do it yourself, and that's always been the way. You know, there's people, you know, I'm sure there's, there's individuals out there who at times have remarked, you know, they're friends with me, and well, they're really not. So um, I definitely keep to myself and and handle it in uh, my own way. It still is, I would still say it has developmental stages. Um, There are times, you know, each session is uh, unique in the sense because certainly I don't have any information about the person coming. And once the session begins, it can, you know, it can start off a certain way. And, for example, I had a lady a few months ago and for a private session, and I'm not saying this to sound insensitive, but she was, you know, the sweet little old lady type personality. And as the session began, uh, a male presence had come forward and claimed he was her husband. And it turned out she had lost her husband, and he stated that he, you know, before the session even had gone any further, he requested that I say he wanted to make sure that she knew uh, that he always loved her and still did. And, of course, my cynicism, which I do have, was like, well, who doesn't want to hear that? But 
um, somebody on the other side also told him, because he seemed suddenly to be almost a little embarrassed, like he wanted to step back. And somebody over there said to him, you know, speak now or forever, hold your peace. And, you know, he progressed further, and it uh, turned out that he had been, I mean, he made my blood run cold. He had been extremely abusive to her. And he said to me, and he said to me, don't censor the word out. You know, he apologized to her for being a total, begins with P and ends with K. And, you know, it was all true where he actually admitted from the hereafter that if he had ever gotten his hands around her throat, he would more than likely would have killed her. So you could see that reaching out in this manner, as much as he might have seemed a little embarrassed by it, he knew, you know, this is your one and only chance to really redeem yourself as best you can. Well, let me ask you this. How did, I mean, he wanted to redeem himself, but how does the session come into play? Did this woman, this, this older woman, call you up? and say, I want a session with you because, or, I mean, what... Oh, what? no, they never would say that. They would just, you know, contact, you know, one of the office staff and just say, you know, they'd see on the computer the list of days and appointments available and just make it and mm-hmm. make the appointment. And then she would, um, when she, you know, came in, I have no idea what she's there for. It can be um, anything because I think... Um, I won't allow people to volunteer any information or elaborate on anything. If they do, I immediately tell them, no, 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 don't say anything. If I misunderstand something that the souls may be saying, I'll always say to the subject, no, you know, if it's misunderstood, they have to straighten it out from over there, that I can't ask you as the subject to straighten it out. Because to me, there'd be no purpose behind it then. So I think probably, you know, my own cynicism or skepticism uh, keeps it working in a unique manner. And this is where with, with the book Life Between Heaven and Earth, we're, we're learning about how you know, things may not be what they would seem or what we have been taught to believe um, by organized religion or such. Uh, One of the stories in the book is about uh, a brother and sister that were, were in a terrible car accident and the sister passed away. And the brother, while he was over there, had the choice whether or not to stay there or come back and because they were in a sense soulmates he decided to stay there with her and not come back here to go on with his life and so, you know and life there yeah, certainly yeah, is about choices about choices he had a choice whether to uh, yeah i was kind of fascinated by that story he was like they were in the car accident she died immediately and then he was in a coma at the hospital and so then he could have either recovered from the coma or not or gone on to the 
life after, as you say, uh, and decided to do that, and that was his Where choice. Where he actually yeah, decided to, you know, stay. He said he would not have felt comfortable coming back, uh, you know, with the fact that she had passed on. And, you know, you just, you don't know when your time comes or what it could involve. Uh, I did a session last night for some uh, young woman whose uh, brother-in-law had passed on. And he said when he first got over there, he was pissed off. <laughs> but when you uh, say got over there, where where is they? Because I want to just, I have to, uh, you know, maybe I'm... I say skeptic, but, uh, like, wh- where is there? Is it just, I mean, out in infinity, or I am trying to get a, like, what are who, you know, you're talking about souls. Is it energy? Is it, you know, a- an actual vision of people as they were when they were on Earth? Or what is it? What's there? Well, out, when saying that, it's like I seem to understand that the world's, run parallel. There's is another dimension that's non-physical. Um, and if the word soul like implies religion, I'll say consciousness, um, where that is what seems to survive what we see as physical death. And that con- you know, because the thing is, it's funny, uh, you know, sometimes I'll have trouble believing it because of what, how we've been conditioned, and yet, the, you know, the consciousness over there has said, you know, what was one of the basic things you learned in school? Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So I guess it becomes, we become a form of ourselves. Our physical body definitely passed dies. The physical body dies and the consciousness survives. Okay, so and, you're you're in touch with that consciousness. Yeah. I, I and you know, in well the title of the book, Life Between Heaven and Earth, what you didn't know about the world hereafter and how it can help you. Does it always help you? I mean, the stories in the book, and you've described some of them, or a couple of them, are always, you know, tragic kinds of relationships or, you know, and so that it, are people interested in, 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 in sitting down with you because they want to resolve something? And, and that's one question. But secondly, does it always have a happy ending? I mean, that you might be hearing things or feeling the energy or the consciousness from out there that doesn't resolve things, that maybe uh, creates more uh, difficulty for the, the, the person who's sitting with you. Uh, more I questions. Say, yeah. I would say most of the time, the consciousness will want to straighten things out, but um, harmonize a situation, you know, relieve an individual here on the earth of like guilt, remorse, anything like that. But not every session is necessarily an unpleasant one. Um, I had a 
woman yesterday for a private session who came from what I would call a meet me in St. Louis home, you know, or, you know, for listeners who are young and don't know about that film, it's, it's a, a shorthand that they'll use from over there. And that means she did not come from an unhappy or dysfunctional home as many of us did. And Joe, or they'll jokingly, because they know I remember from the time frame, uh, referred to it as like a leave it to beaver home. And so there isn't really any need in that case to make things better. But her parents were thrilled to come through and just rekindle the joyfulness that they all shared when the parents were still here on the earth with uh, the husband and wife, the children, the siblings, pets. And the honest with you, that's always a nice breath of fresh air because I will say most of the sessions are tragic or very intense where every now and then you get that type of a session where it's nice to hear that people came from a very joyous, loving, blessed home. They do exist. Yeah. (laughs) They do exist. I know that. I'm a social worker, and I'm a little skeptical about that, too, but I do know that they do exist. We're not all dysfunctional families. I want to get back, though, to the story, the first one you started describing, because that's the, the one about the grieving parents, the parents who lost both of their children in a car accident, and I guess they had a third one, a daughter, who was uh, alive and, and, and well, but uh, because that's like the worst thing that can happen to anyone, or that, I mean, losing both children in a, in a car accident, and uh, they came to you, and um, that, uh, their story is interesting because as they connect with their two lost souls with you, it led them to do other things in their lives, which ended up very positive in terms of their contributions. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, because I find that a very kind of interesting way that they, they, they led their lives based on their, um, their sessions with you. Yeah, well, the thing is, the, um, the comforting fact comes that the parents realizing... Uh, that the children are all right, they're in a happy place, they're together. It gave them the forum to explain, you know, why they chose to stay together. But then their parents started working with other bereaved parents um, through the group Compassionate Friends and such. So, as I said to the mom, I said, it, it's almost, you know, out of what we might see as a negative came a positive. And I said to her, your youngsters are giving me the feeling that that was your calling in life. And as much as no matter what, they still would rather have their children back. That's never going to change. But being that that was the way it was at that time. She came to realize that it, it was, in a sense, a way to trigger her calling, 
that everything has a purpose and you know it it helps her to you know to keep moving on because the only way a bereaved parent is going to understand another bereaved parent is you know you have to have been in the same boat and that's what I think was very unique about it. It's like an experience that they all had to go through. So this outcome would come to focus. So she really dedicated her life to helping others who have found themselves in the same position very... Absolutely, <clears throat> and still does. Yeah, and still does. And, Support groups, yeah. You know, as yourself a social worker, it's... It helps, you know, it helps her to cope better, too, knowing that she is helping others that are going through a similar situation. You know, my mother never lost a child, so my mother would know she feels something, but she would not know truly how she feels. Because it's, it's like anything. You have to learn it for yourself, experience it for yourself. Um, another thing with the book, too, is after all these years, finding out that according to the consciousness of the hereafter, there's no such thing as failure. Where so many people here will feel they failed somehow, and they'll say, no, change the wording from failure to experience because the experience that you've gone through is what helps you to progress and grow. Otherwise, you know, we'd we'd be deadbeats here. And there really would be no purpose. The life has a purpose. There's something to be gained. They have even said... Uh, meaning the consciousness, you know, we have to experience, like in the Chinese philosophy, the yin and the yang, you have to experience the negative and the positive. Um, Otherwise, you really can't um, balance yourself. That the negative is not only extremely important, but also... Um, the greater, so to speak, graces or growth can come from that. Well, and and I think it, we only have a few minutes left, so I just kind of want to sum it up because, uh, you know, what you're describing really applies to many of the stories, obviously, in the book. We've touched on a couple of them, but there are a lot more. And uh, they do, and I am still the skeptic. I use the word skeptic, and many of my listeners probably are too, but... Uh, get the book, read the rest of the stories, because they do uh, help to, um, I guess, the purpose of the book. It does offer hope and, and, and comfort to a lot of, of uh, those who were or who do suffer from uh, uh, losing a loved one. So um, I want to make sure that everybody has the website that they can give, you know, the website they can go, go to for more information about the book and more information about you. So why don't you tell us what that is? Well, it's very simple, georgeanderson.com. <laughs> Coming from a guy who's technically challenged, very okay. bad. Well, um, that's not your area of expertise. 
Yeah, no, it certainly isn't. You know, again, I really don't even know how to use a cell phone, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, you you connect in, in other ways, and that's what the book is about. It's been yeah, great having you on the show this morning. Lots of interesting stories. George Anderson, Life Between Heaven and Earth, What You Didn't Know About the World Hereafter and How It Can Help You. Um, I'm going to say goodbye, and we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Robbie Hardy, author of Upsetting the Table, Women Mentoring Women. Uh, Despite the inroads by women in the workplace, a double standard still exists, reinforced by gender stereotypes that view an assertive woman as pushy, while an assertive man is viewed as bold and self-assured. Without a strong role model, women are unsure how to respond when they encounter such attitudes, especially when they're trying to launch their careers. Women who have overcome these obstacles can and should play a pivotal role in helping other women succeed by acting as mentors, says Robbie Hardy. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Robbie. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, interesting. Your book is, as you, I, I guess it's in the preface where you say, you know, it's not a how-to book, one of those how to be successful in business as a woman, which can be boring, boring, boring. Yours is very unique. It's written as a fable. I like it. Empowering the next generation of women business leaders, guiding young women to take their seats at the table. So you do it in a very kind of 
not kind of, in a very unique way. So let's talk about yeah, the, the context in which you, you get your message across, this, this fable as we're discussing it, upsetting the table, women mentoring women. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, well, my, the way that I learn, you know, when I've, I've read many, many business books, of course, over the years, and, you know, I sometimes get to about page 10 and I just, you know, sort of struggle to continue. And I feel like we all learn by example and we can, by reference, et cetera, of an experience. So I decided to write this as a story, a business fable, uh, not a popular genre for business books, so it's kind of put me in a unique, you know, in some cases a good place, in other cases a no man's land because it's, it is so different. But it is a story about a, a woman whose name is Liz, who sort of stands in for me as the mentor, and a young woman, Jessica, as she's trying to climb the ladder of her career. Yeah. Well, women, well, people like stories. No, no, just women. We all like stories. I think it, it's much easier to, to sort of sometimes get the point across when you hearing a story rather than, as, we, as I said in the beginning, how-tos. And I also want to say, I mean, your own business experience, of course, um, 20 years successful in the corporate sector, uh, entrepreneur, you've, and, and you've done all kinds of things, sat on all sides of the entrepreneurial desk, CEO, right. strategic consultant, you know, I gotta give your creds, which I didn't do in the beginning, so, uh, you're just the person to write the book, right? Um, it, although I have to say, as I'm, I'm, I was reading it, I'm thinking, how far have we gotten, I mean, as women? And you, there's some really kind of startling statistics that you present that aren't really too, inspiring in terms of women earning money, women being heads of companies. It seems to me, have we made progress over the past 30 or 40 years as women in business? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely do think we made progress. I I think we, those of us who have been, you know, around a long time, feel like we sort of peaked probably 10 years ago um, where, you know, we did start to have seats at the table and you could start to begin to see, you know, cracks in, in the glass ceiling, if you want to talk, call it that. But unfortunately, through a variety of, of reasons, some of them political, some of them just societal, um, we have not made the strides that I thought we would make, you know, by my, this point in my career. Because we still, you know, women still make 77 cents for, a, you know, every dollar a man makes. And, you know, that's, you know, time will change that, but a lot of it is attitude. And to be perfectly honest, women have to also ask for it. One of the, you know, it's women or young girls are taught to be polite and demure, and boys are told to be bold and brash. So when you're asking for a pay raise, the bold and brash stands a better chance than the polite and demure. So it's helping women step through that and be comfortable in their voice so that they can ask for the, the money that they're due. And I think a piece of that, too, Robbie, is that we don't ask for it. We don't ask for the raise. We don't ask for the promotion because the, I don't know if it's the subtext is that we don't really deserve it. I mean, we have to be, do things absolutely perfectly before we can ask for a raise. There's a little bit of that or a lot yeah. of that. Uh, we do have to be the perfect good girl. We have to do exactly the right thing. Then we deserve to ask for the raise or, or, the, or the promotion, which, which is not, doesn't seem to be in the male psyche, at least not in no, the same way. No, women are grateful 
for a promotion, and obviously this is a gross generalization, but in general, I think it is true. Women are grateful for a promotion or a raise, and men think they deserve it or deserve more. And we're changing that, but it has to start as little girls. Um, and we, you know, when we hear it's a girl or it's a boy, if we could not have such stereotypes, I think it would be helpful. So, you know, we really need to start there. And we've, I think a lot of young girls today think they can do anything they want. They haven't yet encountered that, those issues which, you know, where they've got to stand up for themselves and be bold and be, you know, be willing to interrupt and be willing to stand up um, and say what's on their mind or what their opinion is or what it is they need or deserve. So and what so, kind of parenting you know, or mentoring do you think it requires? I mean, because as you're talking, and I agree with you, I think this it begins way back, not just once they get a job and then you have a, correct. well, for instance, a mentor. You have to start from the beginning uh, if you're going to have that, if you're going to feel good about yourself and confident enough to do that, to stand up and to be pushy, if you want to describe it as that. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. yeah, that's how it's called anyway. When, you know, being assertive, for, it's assertive for a man and pushy for a woman. Um, you know, there's a lot of programs today in schools um, to try to help girls, you know, get into science and math and, and broaden their horizon for um, what they might do and in colleges, et cetera. My mentoring angle is for all those women who never had that or it didn't stick or it didn't work, trying to catch them in their, you know, in the early part of their career to help them um, you know, get learn some of the tricks of the trade, be able to role play with somebody, to be able to talk it through in a safe environment and get, you know, some of the advice and some of the steps that, you know, people have to take to get where they're trying to go and to get what they deserve. So, so where do you start? Where do you start with these women? Because as you say, you, you, they are, they've already been launched, but you and they... Right, they've already been launched. And it really starts from, you know, I've mentored over 40 women in my career. And it just starts with a conversation of, you know, them, you know, talking about they're generally, by the time they come looking for a mentor, they're in a situation where... They can see people growing around them, and they're not quite, you know, it's not happening to them, but they know they're smart, they know they're doing everything they should be doing, and they're trying to figure out, you know, what's wrong, you know. And now usually it's what's wrong with me is their sort of approach. And it's really all about, you know, having a conversation and getting them to be comfortable talking about where they are and their experiences, having to feeling safe that it's, you know, not going to go back to the to their employer or to anybody else. And, you know, developing that relationship. I mean, it's somewhat, sometimes it's sort of like dating um, when, as you try to get to know each other, is there a compatibility here? Do you hit it off? You know, do you, can you almost complete each other's sentences in terms of a personality fit? Um, so you might have somebody there. who comes to you who isn't appropriate. Well, let's, what's the scene? Like they call, call you up on the phone, set up, and how does it work? really work? What, Give me an example. Really like well, a, like it's, yeah. Generally for me, it, and, in, and we're, we're going to launch in September, or I'm sorry, in October, a mentoring program that we can talk about later. But often it starts in the office. You might have somebody working for you who you see is maybe in a role that is less than they probably are capable of. So you start helping them 
by giving them more responsibility, start, you know, shoring them up, um, and know that you, that they, you have their back. So you might stretch them to beyond their comfort zone. When it's outside the workplace, it's sometimes someone you might meet um, at a dinner, or I have a woman that was doing some editing for me, and I started mentoring her. Her career was at a, at a kind of at an impasse. She wasn't quite sure what to do. She'd had some horrible, horrible, horrible corporate experiences, so she'd you know left the corporate world and was out on her own and struggling. So, you know, not charging for what her worth. It, you meet these people in various places, and you have to meet them where they are. You just have to listen, and the mentoring relationship grows. Well, it's kind of like a therapy relationship. You know, you looking around for a therapist, you have to be able to connect with the social worker or the psychiatrist or psychologist. There has to be some kind of a chemistry or it's not going to work. So I guess, That's correct. Yeah, That's so correct. it's the same kind. There's some people talking about, you know, let's, you know, do some analysis, and, you know, if you're... You know, you have this much IQ, and this is your background, this is what you do, and then this is what your mentor should be. And I don't believe that that works. I think it really is about chemistry. It really has to be organic. And there, But what is hard now is there are not – how do women find that if they don't, you know, know anyone or they don't, aren't fortunate enough to sort of have someone find them? And that's what this Lessons Earned that we're launching in October is all about, is to provide that a, a forum for them to, you know, have a place to go to at least see if there's somebody that um, might be a match for them. Is Robbie, is there a, uh, I don't know, a counterpart to this? Do, do men, I don't know if they call it mentoring, but it seems that men, when they get into a corporate situation, and this is just anecdotal, but they do they um, have somebody usually who is a mentor, who has their back, that that kind of happens maybe more readily for men than it does for a woman? That I, Yeah, I think, well, I think men, you know, what what we call it today would be sponsors, so to speak. I mean, I think men connect with their colleagues, and then this, you know, what we call the good old boys club steps in, and they take care of each other, and that's who they're comfortable working with, and if they've been around a long time, they've, you know, that really is, you know, they don't relate to women necessarily, so men do have that support system. Now, I'm sure that's not always true, but generally, you know, men take care of each other in, not in a nurturing way, but in a, you know, getting them up to the next ladder so that they can be successful and support their family and, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, and, not, and that's not the case for women today. One of the things you said, I think, I don't, it was that if you're, sitting, if you're in a corporate situation and you're sitting down uh, and you have achieved a certain level of, you know, I don't know if it was board of directors or whatever, but that, you know, if you have one woman at the table, it's very difficult for that one woman because she's usually surrounded by men. And, but if you get two or I think it was three women at the table, the whole thing changes. The whole atmosphere changes. And, um, and I think that's so true. So you've you got to get those three women at the table on those upper echelons of decision-making in companies, and that changes everything, doesn't it? It does change. I mean, having, I mean, Harvard uh, did that a... It was a Harvard uh, review, yeah. yeah. It was a Harvard um, uh, report that, you know, when there are three women 
at a board table or really at any table in any situation, it becomes, they become directors. They don't become the female directors or, you know, just a token or whatever, but they become part of the group and become part of the whole. Um, and I think that's very true. I can tell you that, you know, in my career, I was always the only woman. And suddenly when there were other women in the room, I was like, who are you and what are you doing in my space? So I had this, this is years and years ago, it was just sort of a strange reaction. And then you realize, of course, that, you know, that's, the job is to get more women at the table. But I think there are a lot of women my age that, you know, for some part it was like, you know, we're used to being the only one, so what's going on here? Um, but when we get women working together, you know, with men, um, it, they bring a different perspective to things and they balance a lot of, um, you know, other personalities and other uh, ways of working that men have that you get sort of this nice whole group um, to forge a company forward. Well, you talked about you've mentored 40, 41 women over your lifetime. Like, tell us some of those stories. I mean, the most difficult, for instance, there must have been some where you felt like this, I, you know, there's nothing I can do, or uh, some of the biggest challenges for you in each one of those particular mentoring situations. I, um, I, they were actually all just amazing. Um, they, they were, they had their differences. I think the uh, the first one I did was a young woman who um, was hired to be a receptionist um, in the division that I was running, and. I bumped into her for something and started talking to her and realized that, you know, she was, she just had, she was smart and she certainly could do more than answer the phone and just started giving her more and more responsibility. The hard part for, in a lot of, the hardest things for me and I think for any mentor is getting a young woman's self-esteem and confidence sufficient so that she's willing to and doesn't have to feel brave, but can feel bold. And, you know, being brave, you know, implies that there's some fear, and being bold is, I deserve to be here. And that's the, that's the biggest challenge in all of the women that I mentored is helping them see that they can do it and in these corporate situations that I had their back. I wasn't going to put them out there and then let them fail and, you know, toss them out the door. So, you know, it was, it's a very iterative process, but they've all gone on to, and most of them, I did meet them as secretaries or receptionists or executive assistants or something like that. And they've all gone on to do great things. They were all college educated um, some have gone on to, you know, higher education, and uh, and all have gone on to be successful in in the management world. So it's very rewarding. Very rewarding. So you do keep track of them and and stay I do, connected. I do, yeah. and they keep track of me. So yes, we we keep we stay in touch, and it's pretty amazing um, because it's you know it spans a lot of years now. What about these women? Do they uh, now have they carried on uh, the tradition or pay forward? Do they now mentor other women who? Uh, I mean, some of them they... are about to. Some of them have, you know, have have paid it forward. Others, you know, have not. 
but I've been in touch with them um, as we launched this uh, Lessons Earned to talk about them being mentors and how do they feel about that. And it, you know, it's, it's information for me and it's you know, information for them. And some of them just don't feel comfortable. Um, and I think, and now two or three of them I'm mentoring again because they really don't feel confident enough. So that's been interesting as we've reconnected. What um, about the fact know. that, I mean, you've helped these women, you've changed their lives, you've helped them to change their lives and yeah, help them. They, cha- they are the ones that did it. They do the changing, but you've helped them to feel differently about themselves and what they're able to accomplish. Now, that's not done in a vacuum. Uh, I guess this is my social work perspective. So when they are able to do that and, and you know, they're going beyond their comfort zone, they are, you know, that feeling that they deserve more than what they're doing. And um, how does that affect, first, their relationships at work with other women, with other men, but maybe even more importantly with their families? Because you, now you've really up, you've changed everything. You've changed the system. So, you know, whether they were with a partner or a spouse or whomever, children, and they were one way, as you described them, and then suddenly they become self-assured. And I keep using the word and pushy, whatever they have to be to get where they want to be, but um, no, but self-assured and able to accomplish way beyond what they thought they could. What happens to them in their relationships and their families, both at home and at work? Well, you have to realize this does not happen overnight, so it's a very iterative process. Um, however, they do change over time, and some more slowly than others, and there have been... Um, negative consequences it, from one perspective or positive actually at, at the end of a divorce or getting out of a relationship in some cases that was abusive because you know in their personal life they were no different than they were in their professional life they were you know allowing people to you know take control of them so um, it, it does it does filter into their whole life now there are a few who you know, could put on two faces, you know, have a professional um, way and then and kind of be the same in their, in their personal life, which is a little hard to imagine, but I've seen it happen. Um, but it does affect their personal life, absolutely. Yeah, so that's a whole other area. That's a whole uh, other area. That's for you. <laughs> that's for <laughs> me, exactly. This is what part. I was thinking. You're upsetting the table, and then, uh, right. you know, the whole apple cart, whatever happens, right? right? Yeah, you said you're upsetting the table, you know, the corporate table and the dining room table. But exactly. it does happen, you know, it does happen um, slowly. So, you know, it doesn't often, you know, it's not, it doesn't, it's not suddenly this person is, you know, completely different um, overnight. So, and, other, and often the family grows with them, so, yeah. which is good. Yeah, so there can be, the, the upside is that they can be, it's an evolution, as you say, a process. Correct. It evolves. It doesn't happen it overnight. It absolutely evolves, correct. Yeah. Oh, and it, let's, you know, I want to get, well, let's talk about specifics that you have in the book because there are very specific issues that women struggle with uh, or that they encounter or, in, or the character in your book does. Um, but you have very specific kinds of ways of dealing with some of the obstacles that women uh, experience. So maybe we should talk about that, like how to, you know, how to be able to get over all of this and to, to get and um, what you deserve. So um, one of the things you talk about is visual success. If you can see it, you can do it. What do you mean by that? Yes, I mean, I am a big believer in um, 
and maybe that's why this book is written more in this fashion than as a how-to, because it's you know it lets you see um, these situations. I have <clears throat> I ask these women to imagine themselves in this next role or you know doing this next task or whatever, and we I have several. Um, tools I use to help in that visualization. And one of them is, I, it's called the talk show chart. And I'm not sure if this is where you wanted to go with this, but... Yeah, um, go ahead. The, um, and so the idea is that you imagine yourself being interviewed by, you know, Oprah Winfrey or some talk show host, and they're sitting down and they're asking you, you know, you, you know, what are you here to tell us about? What did you do? And you go through this process where you write down or you can just do it verbally and you tell them about your success, how you made it, how you, you know, got to where you were, how to, who helped you get there. And so it allows you to imagine that if, let's say, you're going to take on a big project, you're talking about it as if it's already done. So it allows you to look at, a situation from multiple sides before you even step into it. And it's amazing how powerful that is. And you use it, obviously, in, in various forms, but it lets women sort of get step outside themselves a little bit and be able to look at what this might be, not so much internally within fear within themselves, but look at it, you know, kind of sit it on the table and be able to look at it and turn it around and say, oh, yeah, I can see how I can do that. Uh Oh, but what about if I go left? What will happen there? That road looks like it's blocked. So we can kind of talk through those things. And eventually, when they can see themselves having been successful by achieving whatever the objective was or whatever the project is and it's done and it's great, they... You know, there's this huge aha moment. So you're helping them to develop this, I guess, narrative, right? Correct. It's a narrative, and it's a they yes, it's a narrative. It's a visualization. It's the ability to take something and break it down into small pieces and turn it around and turn it over and and look at it and realize that it's really not that hard. And sometimes it really is hard, and then, you know, you take it from there. But, and I have not had anyone, I've done these visualization types of um, workshops or, you know, conversations with that it hasn't worked. And it doesn't mean you don't have to do it more than once, but it also gives them a tool when they're not with their mentor and they're, you know, trying to figure something else, they can do it themselves. Okay. Well, we only have a couple minutes left, and we just sort of we're just kind of uh, wetting our listeners' appetites because if they want to uh, know about the other guidelines, and they have to get the book. So uh, empowering. Uh, so let's upsetting the table. Women mentoring women. Uh, Robbie Hardy, and we can go to what? Uh, tell them what website they can go to to, to get the well, book and to you know can more. Get bu- the book on Amazon.com, and there's also a link on my website, RobbieHardy.com. Great. Well, it's been great talking to you this morning. Obviously, I, I could have gone on. Uh, it would have been fun, more. yes. It we'll, would have been we'll fun, have but it was great. Time. We had our half hour, and uh, now uh, listeners can go out and buy the book. Uh, yeah, great talking to you this morning. Thanks nice so much. Nice talking to you, too. Take care. Yeah. Thanks. Bye-bye. I, um, 
Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 